0: To get products to its customers sooner, Walmart is rolling out a two-hour delivery express option in nearly 2,000 of its stores. Meanwhile, US retailers J. Crew and Neiman Marcus filed for bankruptcy last week, marking the first major American retailers to file since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this just in, 64% of consumers have shifted their apparel shopping to online. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, May 11th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by guests Stacy DeBroth and Trevor Sumner. Stacy is a social media strategist, best-selling author, and the founder and CEO of Influence Central. Her expert advice and insights have been featured on CNN, Bloomberg News, Forbes, Good Morning America, and now Rethink Retail. Trevor is the CEO of Perch, a recognized leader in in-store product engagement marketing, interactive retail displays, and augmented reality. Stacy, Trevor, thank you both for joining today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having
0: us. Happy to have you. And I wish that the first topic here wasn't so bleak, but we will talk about some breaking news, uh, which is bankruptcies. Marking the first major bankruptcy since the onset of the pandemic, the preppy apparel retailer J. Crew and U.S. luxury retailer Neiman Marcus filed for bankruptcy last week. So last Monday, J.Crew announced a deal with stakeholders to convert $1.6 billion of its debt into equity, while Neiman Marcus hopes to flush its $4 billion in debt. J.Crew also secured $400 million in financing from existing lenders to help fund operations through the bankruptcy. And also bracing for the process, Lord & Taylor announced plans to liquidate inventory in its 38 department stores once the restrictions to slow the coronavirus spread are lifted. The U.S. unit of the Canadian outdoor apparel brand Roots is also set to liquidate in bankruptcy. So with this news and focusing first on J.Crew... Trevor, for a brand that was once worn almost ritualistically by former first lady Michelle Obama, why do you think J. Crew lost its edge in recent years?
1: Yeah, I think it's an unfortunate story because J. Crew somehow has this identity that a lot of us relate to. We all had J. Crew in our closets and probably still do. However, it's gone undergone a, a lot of changes. In twenty seventeen, when creative director Jenna Lyons stepped down, it seems to really kind of have lost its way. And Mickey Drexler also stepped down even at sales. Plummeted and debt mounted. And I think part of the challenge is they just lost their direction. They went luxury and outpriced their customer. All of a sudden, they realized that their price points were unsustainable and weren't attractive to their customer. They reacted by going back to their budget roots, but they were kind of in this no man's land of design and the customer had moved on. So, for example, J.Crew missed the athleisure trend entirely. And so they saw a lot of cannibalization of their customer base. And you mentioned it yourself, and you'll see this as a story with almost every single bankruptcy. Is the fact that they have large debt loads left over from leverage buyouts from private equity firms, right? So they had just $26 million in cash versus their $1.7 billion in long-term debt, and so they've been negotiating deals to try and extend out the timeline. But J. Crew's been on a bankruptcy watch for years. This is just a, you know convenient time to do it, and they were hoping that the IPO of Madewell could have helped that balance sheet position, but that being delayed, you know, this was really kind of the only option. So. I think this is just an example of not really understanding your customer and creating too much fragility based upon taking on too much debt.
0: Mm-hmm. So Trevor, you said they lost touch with the customer. They outpriced their customers. Stacey, do you agree that these were the biggest mistakes that J.Crew made?
2: Um, I agree that there are mistakes, but I actually would highlight what I think was an even greater mistake on their part. J. Crew. In a time where we've seen a digital explosion in e-commerce and online purchasing, J.Crew instead focused primarily on a marketing strategy of getting foot traffic into their brick and mortar stores, and they have 440 of those locations between J.Crew, Madewell, and their factory stores. Also, as Trevor points out, J.Crew did try to go more upscale. Its sales declined by 4%, but the thing that was growing for J. Crew was Madewell, which was a more casual, affordable line, more designed to younger consumers, which grew 14% last year. And in this e-commerce marketplace, younger consumers want to shop online. And when you have J.Crew with a strategy that's primarily driving to brick and mortar, they have their catalogs, they have a website, but they're not really engaged as an e-commerce brand. I think that that ended up proving along with their debt load and and the points that Trevor made in ultimately being their downfall and and the reason they had to default into bankruptcy.
0: So their digital presence wasn't on par with the customers. Exactly. Those are great points. And I read in a recent Forbes article, so Gotham Wodkipot, who was recently on our podcast, he's the retail center director at George Mason University, he was quoted in response to J Crew's diffusion brand madewell and he said they didn't cause J Crew to fail but they failed to reposition the brand to go after a different segment and provide more value to that segment. Are you in agreement with his statements on madewell? I think yes. I think
2: that J Crew you have a huge rising demographic of millennials coming into their into their parenting years. We have Gen Z that's just entering and taking over the 20-somethings. And I think that this move overall to casual clothing, and when you look at COVID-19, we're doing even more e-commerce shopping. We're going even more casual, that deformalization trend. And I think that they simply made a miscalculation about how to engage their customers and the price point that their customers were willing to pay vis-a-vis their offerings. And I think that in a moment where a lot of brands... Have been really challenged to hit the digital acceleration. One of the things we see in retail is this sluggishness, whether it's point of sale or this just slow to adopt to this social media explosion and what's going on in the marketplace. And when you have a much more traditional marketing focus, you end up being at risk of being out advanced by those competitors who have really gone direct to consumer and really understand what it means to play in a digital marketing space.
0: I really like both of your points about the deformalization trend, Stacy, and then Trevor, to your point, they missed the mark on the athleisure trend. So, you know, moving on from J. Crew a little bit, do you think that COVID-19 is accelerating the inevitable? Are there changes that retailers need to make in order to survive or are your... Outlooks more positive or negative?
1: It's funny, Stacey. I, you know, when I think about you know J. Crew and their e-commerce strategy, certainly they could have focused a lot more on online marketing, which is a little bit different than kind of focusing on e-commerce because you can use online marketing to right. drive store sales. But I'm actually, when it, when you look at e-commerce, it seems to be a panacea for a lot of these guys. But the reality is that e-commerce has higher cost of acquisition because of the greater competitiveness. So the cost acquisition is higher. The customer spends about 60% less. If you can get them to spend both in-store and online, they spend about seven times more than just online only. Returns are a massive problem. Over you know, about half a trillion dollars of returns are expected with 30% return rates. So the notion that e-commerce is going to generate a lot of free cash flow, I think it's a nice idea, but I think it's really about leveraging. And, and Stacey was talking about this this kind of combination of both the in-store footprint and online, and I think the question is, how does that happen in a post-COVID world? And the reality is, there's so much uncertainty about what the timeframes are. We don't even know what it looks like. We know that Macy's is opening up 68 stores this week on their path to opening their full store footprint over the next six to eight weeks. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they see. They've predicted that sales will be down to 80%. We've also heard, you know, from analysts uh, looking at China and others that they expect q3 to be off by 30 to 50% and then you know kind of q4 the american consumer to come back in force but still see about 5 to 10% less kind of sale. So I'm an entrepreneur which means I'm an optimist, I believe in kind of changing the world for the better. I think we're all cooped up in our in our homes and and we're we're kind of really craving kind of human connection, we're craving physical connection out there. We've there's an empty desk to e-commerce. And I believe the American consumer will go back to shopping and it will be slow and we'll have to get comfortable with it. But it also really depends about the macroeconomic and the social health effects that we see over the next couple of months. So it's very difficult. And I think technology will help kind of ease that transition and provide ways for us to be safer. But there have to be massive changes in terms of how you rate your safety in store and how you publicize it, how you market to the consumer and mix online and physical stores together.
0: Stacey, did you want to add anything to what Trevor said? I especially like what you said about customers who are shopping in-store and online tend to spend seven times more. So obviously there's there's a space that can't be filled right now because of the conditions.
2: I guess the one overlay that I would add to what I thought was excellent trend spotting by Trevor is we recently fielded a survey to over 700 consumers on our influence central insights panel and 64% of consumers now have shifted their shopping for clothing online. And I think this is an example of a post pandemic change in behavior where people are going to get more and more comfortable buying. I do think the issue of returns, but I think a lot of the traditional browsing of stores is not coming back anytime soon. And there's going to be some form of this merger between seeing things in person, but also having a comfort. So for example, if I'm a J. Crew customer and I know I wear a size 10, then I'm going to feel a lot of comfort of just ordering their clothing. And and so I think that this behavior change that's woven into the very fabric of how we shop for things, especially as we expand a footprint of comfort outside of groceries and essentials, is here to stay. And so in any reconfiguration that J.Crew does, I really think they need to bring alive their social media marketing, their engagement of influencers, their engagement of storytelling around their product line that will continue to drive. And also we see social media platforms that have opened up from Pinterest to Instagram, new ways to shop so that you see a look and you can directly shop from that. And that is going to be a trend that is going to only strengthen and really embed itself in a normative way that we
1: go about shopping.
0: Great point, Stacey. You said 64% of consumers have shifted their apparel purchases online. Correct.
1: It's going to be interesting to see people are predicting what is the long-term shift of e-commerce. I think one of the things that I found is a really helpful construct is the notion about the difference between shopping and buying. And that, you know, e-commerce is great when I'm trying to buy something. I know what I want to buy. And it's it's really about kind of ease, convenience, price availability. You know, shopping is more about discovery and serendipity and really kind of engaging with products. And so I think the question is, how do you start engaging with products online and in ways that are similar to the ways that you need to reduce the frictions um, that, you know, are similar to in-store? And I think things like shopping the look, there are a bunch of interesting technology companies who bring in like Curate, who take the Instagram feeds and show different looks from actual people and help people kind of give a sense of what these things look like in the wild and and on real people. And so those tools are going to be critical to kind of replicate what is that discovery and serendipity that you find in store.
0: It's going to be a hard one to um, accommodate. I mean, just the discovery process. How how does that look, like you said, online? Do you think retailers should consider an online-only model? Is that ever going to be something that is as profitable?
2: Well, we've seen a lot, um, leading up to COVID, we saw a lot of traction of direct-to-consumer brands from Mm -hmm. clothing to mattresses to, you know, across different sectors. And the one thing that led explosive growth for direct-to-consumer brands was word of mouth, this powerful, like, could they get viral? But I also think that embedded in some of our, especially when it comes to clothing and apparel, there is this browsing sort of preference. And so I think that we're going to see a mix. I think that upstart brands are not going to open locations, although you see the reverse where some brands have really made it online and then they start opening smaller retail locations of, of what they're doing. So I think that we're going to see a phenomenal shift. If you look at a brand like J Crew, where 95% of its efforts is in brick-and-mortar retail, I think you're going to see that go down to 15%, and you're going to see a rise of other ways they could do that. Or you might even start to see brands like that instead of having their own stores embedded in collections where it's discoverable, but they're not maintaining all these leases and rents and counting on foot traffic.
1: I take the counter view, and I'm always the defender of in-store commerce and -and brick-and-mortar. If if you look at it, two-thirds of direct-to-consumer companies who've raised more than $6 million have opened stores. Uh, You look at Casper on the mattress side of the house, and the way that they've defended why they're better than Purple is that they're opening stores. Warby Parker, who everybody thinks of as an online eyewear company, they sell more in-store by a lot. When they had 50 stores, they sold more in-store than they do online. Now they have over 100 stores. And so e-commerce is really great for building up your initial traction. But over time, your cost of acquisition comes up and stores turn out to be more profitable. The customers spend more. There are less returns. It has a bigger impact on your brand. And so I think the question is, what is that right balance that Stacey was talking about? You know, is it 85, 15? Is it whatever it might be? I tend to take the view that if you look at anybody who's profitable at scale, doors are a really big part of it.
2: I think that all the points you make, Trevor, are really compelling, but I just am not sure that we're going to feel comfortable going in and trying on clothes that other people have, you know, tried on, had that touch, that... I think that it's going to be a long time until people feel, or there are certain things that are going to have to take place that we feel comfortable just meandering and um, in dealing with merchandise that's not pristine.
0: Both good points. Before we dive into our next segment, let's hear some good news. The Canadian athletic apparel and accessories retailer Lululemon celebrated the grand opening of its seventh and largest store in Hong Kong at the end of April. Last week, European countries Italy, Spain, Greece, Portugal, and Germany began relaxing some of their restrictions to resume public life. In the United Kingdom, British supermarket Tesco broke records when it delivered 1 million grocery orders within one week. In North America, Gap announced plans to reopen up to 800 stores by the end of May. Meanwhile, Starbucks reopened 85% of its US stores last week with modified operations and hours, according to a letter published by CEO Kevin Johnson. The coffee retailer says it expects more than 90% of the stores to be fully operational by June. To meet the sudden surging demand of grocery, Walmart has developed its speedy two-hour express delivery service. It was recently announced and piloted last month. So this month they're rolling out to nearly 2,000 stores across U.S. And they are bringing 160,000 products ranging from groceries and also general merchandise and toys to customers within the two-hour window. It is a bit pricier. The express delivery is $10. There's also a $9.95 delivery charge for people who are not walmart delivery unlimited subscribers and the order value must exceed 30 dollars, and then you have to factor in tips so it 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 is expensive but it's two hour window that they're promising stacy i'll pass this to you first what are your general thoughts on walmart coming out with this competitive offering
2: i think it's brilliant i think that walmart has been gunning for amazon's business and particularly with Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods and Amazon Prime and Pantry, I think we're going to see a lot of A-B testing, and we have from Walmart, about how to meet its consumer's needs and also some of the changing demographics of their consumer when they start to offer online shopping and express delivery. So first of all, in our Influence Central consumer panel, 77% of consumers now feel comfortable ordering groceries online. And what's striking about that is one of the barriers to online groceries was trusting somebody else to pick out things like fruits and vegetables and meat. You just didn't think that they were going to pick the best, that they mm-hmm. may pick the worst of the bananas or, or <laughs> some meat that like had an expiration date that was far in the back. And also being willing to live with product substitutions. If you didn't get your favorite brand, would they give you something that you would like? And it turns out that we've not only are we comfortable, but with the economic uncertainty and the layoffs, 88% of consumers most want deals, discount. And Walmart has always had a value premise that if whatever they're selling, it's going to be at the best price, probably, that you can find it for. And when we asked Amazon Prime subscribers, if they were willing to do another subscription service that offered them some of that express fast moving delivery, 58% are ready to sign up. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we've seen an evolution of Walmart investing first in online with jet.com, which they bought for a huge purchase price. They've been really focused on online grocery pickup, which is one step where you order your groceries, you drive up, somebody just drops them into your trunk And now they're going a bit upscale. Like you pay a premium, but boy, you're going to find your stuff is going to arrive just in time for dinner. You can reload. If they have it online, they're going to sort of grab and and go for you. And I think that we are seeing Walmart stretch its and flex its muscles about how it can continue to innovate and meet consumers' needs. And as you start to look at the packaging they put together, yes, this is a premium, but if you also look at the discounting that they do on the products they carry, it might add up to a really cool value premise for people looking not to go into the grocery store right now.
0: So Stacy, cool value premise, the fact that they have lower priced products might offset those premium costs for delivery. Trevor, do you agree that this is a brilliant move?
1: I think it is a brilliant move from a marketing perspective. I, I do think it's a double-edged sword. So from the marketing perspective, I think the positivity is really... Focusing on the logistical footprint that they have with local stores, local communities and really plugging into some of the community and local marketing aspect and ways that they can out Amazon, Amazon with two hour delivery in ways that they can offer not just more options, right? I personally think that the $20 plus tip on a minimum $30 purchase will be prohibitive for the Walmart shopper. The Walmart shopper is very discount focused and price conscious. And in fact, you know, the number one reason if you survey people regarding buy online pick up in store, the number one pr- reason people do buy online pick up in store, which has surged about over 200%, is because they want to avoid the delivery fee. And in fact, these days that might even include like, you know, kind of having some level of risk associated with it, but that that amount is just too high. And They are focusing on their strength, which is grocery, but also grocery is a razor thin margin category. So there's not a lot to play with and not a lot to eat. So some of the stuff may be exception based, right? So if I have urgent needs, you know, what we're seeing is adult beverage, alcoholic beverage delivery in grocery has surged 100 to 200%, depending if it's beer, wine, or liquor. Um, Certain categories that have higher margin are going to do better here, but ultimately, you know, I think this is really about disintermediating Instacart and the delivery guys who, you know once they start owning the customer become really, really problematic for Walmart. And I think Walmart really needs that first party data to own that experience. But I think the two hour delivery is more of a marketing hook than what you'll see in terms of mass usage.
0: Hmm, interesting, more of a marketing hook. And I love that you brought up Instacart because I wanted to ask about that. They have zero inventory holding costs they've seen rapid growth, especially because of the pandemic, but they just turned a profit and they've been around since 2012. So that's a bit telling. However, I personally use Instacart. I love the app. It's really easy to use. I don't know that I would switch, but do you guys think Walmart will overtake Instacart? I absolutely do. I think
2: that they're trying to digitally acquire customers. And as Trevor pointed out, the express delivery is going after a much higher demographic. It's going after a more prime Whole Food shopper than going after a cost-conscious budget um, watching, you know, the overlay of those expenses. But with Instacart, I think that As the actual retailers, the big box retailers, figure out how to make it more seamless, I think they're also taking advantage of unemployment, which means they can find a lot of inexpensive labor to turn into delivery services. So they're not relying on an established service. They're picking up the out-of-work Uber drivers. They're picking up people who have been laid off and can make some money on the side in addition to tips. So I think Instacart is not going to win in this battle. And also the other thing is Instacart offers a clean app that you were talking about, Julia, and they offer convenience, but they do not offer discounting. So they are building into the prices of every item. So not only are you paying their fee, but there's padding on the pricing in where they're going to get profit. And with Walmart and other retailers like uh, Costco BJ's or Target with Amazon, what they're doing is, well, Walmart in particular is going to make it around membership or delivery fees or other things, but they're going to stop, they're going to keep those rock bottom prices. And I think that will end up gouging Instacart if their technology catches up with the ease of use and the sort of sleek consumer interface. I think you'll start to see that Instacart is going to dramatically decrease in their sales.
1: I 100% agree. Walmart can't afford to lose their shopper and have an intermediary between that relationship. Yeah. They won't let it happen. And and look, they already have a bigger footprint than Instacart, you know, overall, if you look at e-commerce. So whether it's through discounting, and if you look at a lot of the ways that uh, either Target or Walmart have been encouraging shoppers to sign up, if it's the Walmart subscription, which lowers your delivery fees, there are all kinds of ways in which Walmart can attack and eat at the edges of Instacart, and Walmart's going to win. Walmart always wins. So uh, that's just the way of the world. Yeah. And
2: I also think that we've seen an experimentation phase where when people suddenly didn't feel comfortable going into the grocery stores and they wanted to, we all are looking for ways to get items delivered. There's been a great churning of like, well, how about if I try this? And how about, there's a lot of experimentation and in our Influence Central survey, 56% are saying they're open, just keep it coming. Like, what are my different options? So I don't think people have locked down into patterns yet. And so there's a lot of room for movement in terms of delivery options and and what that's going to look like over the course of this next year. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I
1: think that's a great point. Over 80% of people who've tried to order groceries online have had issues either delays or orders that could not be fulfilled. I personally have a script that reloads the page on Amazon every, every minute and tells me when there's a free delivery window. And then when I get a free delivery window, I click it and it says it's no longer there. Can,
2: can you share that with me? What, what you what yeah. do you got going, Jeremy? Yeah, yeah. It's,
1: it's some, uh, some student who, who built this, Script that reloads the page. If you search for script to to reload Amazon grocery, uh, you should be able to find it. And it's super simple and it just makes a noise. But even then, it's been such, such trouble, right? So, you know, what you're seeing right now is a function of a very unique time and situation where I just need to get groceries. I've tried Instacart. I've tried Amazon. I've tried Fresh Direct. I've tried, I mean, I've ordered from Target. I've ordered from Walmart. And, and that does inflate the numbers. Everyone's like our unique number of customers. So when you look at unique number of customers, That's probably a false metric. You should be looking at spending loyalty and permanent shifts in behavior and we'll make temporary shifts and spend more. But, you know, again, like Walmart, you mentioned their investment in Jet, you know, you look at what they've done with Jet Black and tried to get into a higher price point customer and it's largely failed. The Walmart customers are looking for the most inexpensive products that they can get and value. Yes, they're value shoppers. So. Again, I, I right now with anxieties high, you know, I'll pay an extra ten twenty dollars just to get it, but long term, I'm looking for somebody who can provide it to me in, in, in an expensive way.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's good to note Trevor is based in New York so the hardest hit city, which explains probably why you are having uh, trouble getting the grocery delivery windows. Um, but I think you both honed in on the point that this isn't tr- the traditional, target customer of Walmart, this service that they're offering. Maybe there's a bit of a marketing play here. I've spoken with a lot of people in the supply chain arena who foresee a lot of issues with this, especially because Walmart says that they will include other general merchandise and toys even. So I think there'll be some logistic issues that they'll have to work out. But on the upside, maybe they're trying to attract those new customers who are willing to to pay the higher price. Stacey, it seems like some of the survey data that you collected, you could infer that people will start subscribing to Amazon Prime and a Walmart Unlimited subscription.
2: That was one of the most surprising takeaways that we found coming out of this Influence Central survey data is that you think that once people find something that's working for them, that that's good enough. But I think that you see, and there's been issues on Amazon of price gouging by, and issues with third party vendors and sellers. So I think that people in the scope of things, when you think about Amazon Prime, it's over hundred dollars and it comes with entertainment. I mean, there's lots of facets of it, right? Mm -hmm. Prime reading of um, shopping. But I think that if you look at that being annualized, it ends up being not that very much for a month. And when you think about people's willingness to pay for streaming entertainment, for other things, I think that people are really open, almost as Trevor was describing, going through different variations. Like, what is it? Like, it used to be that maybe you would pick a premium channel or two. Now people are like, okay, five sounds reasonable. Like I'm stuck at home. I will, we've seen a big uptick in people willing to pay for premium content. And I think that this is the same thing, which is this willingness to explore convenience. It's not just the anxiety and the risk people feel just entering the grocery store now in the midst of COVID-19. It's this understanding that you can actually offload a lot of these things. So it used to be in a city, people really understood grocery delivery because of heavy items, right? You didn't have to truck these things up to your apartment, but now that footprint's expanded and you think, you know, if somebody has toilet paper and I can get that delivered, if I can get big, heavy cans delivered of my favorite drinks, alcohol, um, all these different categories, then people are willing to explore package deals where it might only be $9 a month, but it opens you up to that much less trekking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are very much cocooned in our own homes And people are starting to really appreciate the convenience of not having to run around and especially of going to a store and not finding what you want. So this way, you know already in advance that you're going to get the items that you are putting in your cart or close substitution. So I think that this is not going away in terms of a fundamental change in the very fabric of consumer behavior.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, of course, the, the question is, what does fundamental change equate to, right? Where mm-hmm. e-commerce ordering of online groceries has been in like the two to 4% range. If we say it doubles and now it goes to four to 8%, are we talking more on the 30 to 50% range? And so what's going to be interesting to see, and, and Stacey hit on this earlier, is how much of this is going to be about habit forming? And then how much of the consumer behavior is a natural return to You know, what we've seen before because that somehow has some innate value or innate thing reason for existing, or is it really just about habit and adoption? And I think it's going to be a mix of both. And you've got pundits who will give estimates, you know, that are five, 10x off other pundits, both of whom I very much respect. So Mm -hmm. a lot of us are are really kind of looking to this and, and waiting to see data. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful kind of looking at the, in the China market about where we're seeing the retail shopping behavior returned to normal on the brick and mortar store. But if you look at restaurant behavior, it's still very, very much off. And so what is it about those behaviors of, of kind of social optional versus retail being essential? Those, those are some of the dynamics that I think are really going to have to figure out how they play out.
0: Those are good points. And you touched on China, which what we're about to discuss a little bit in this last segment Because cashless payments and contact-free delivery were already standard practice in China before the coronavirus hit. And mobile payments are largely underutilized in the rest of the Western world in comparison. But it appears to be shifting, so we spoke the other week about the growing increase of curbside and BOPUS orders with curbside surging as high as 208% in recent weeks, which Trevor, you noted as well. And Target also saw some of the highest numbers of its app downloads in the month of March. So Trevor, when it comes to technology, what are some of the long lasting changes you'll see in consumer behavior going forward?
1: I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I've been a big fan of Apple Pay ever since I got it. I don't understand why anybody uses a credit card if you have the option. Why go into your wallet, pull it out, put it in the in, with the chip, and now I gotta wait? I mean, literally, the mobile phone is in most people's hand at all time. Just double click, and boom, and you know, it gives pretty good benefits. If you ask me, I'm sure that the points guy has a very firm opinion on Apple Pay versus other uh, <laughs> optimal programs. So, I'm I'm a big fan of contactless. I think some of the challenges have been around security and first-party data. So retailers have been a little bit wary of enabling Apple Pay. They would rather have their own payment systems, which is why you saw you know, Target initially not support it and Walmart come up with their own payment scheme. And in fact, right now, Walmart, I believe the only contactless payment is, is through their app because they want to use that to get their first-party data to be able to correlate in-store purchasing with online. That's how valuable it is. And so I think those adoptions are going to continue. I think contactless payment is here because it's the most convenient. It makes sense. And that's the number one benefit in payments is to reduce the friction. You know, in Europe, they've reduced the security restrictions associated with how big a transaction you can conduct and have seen huge increases. And then there are people like Denmark, where almost three quarters of credit card transactions are done in a contactless way. So I think as people get exposed to a technology that makes it simpler, easier, and, you know, has better reporting for them, I think they're going to adopt it in in that.
0: Stacey, do do you agree? Is there anything you want to add about some of the tech that people will adopt because of the pandemic? Well, I'll build on that.
2: I think that, first of all, we have become incredibly comfortable on applications like Zoom. And you see a surge in telemedicine and this willingness to talk to People online, and also this desire. I think that the quality of the interactions go up. So I can see where customer service might move to a Zoom like connection, where people are going to be more willing to engage in services that they would typically show up for. But if you can, from a consumer standpoint, consult with somebody, you could see somebody in a retail location saying, Okay, so walk me through, zoom in your closet. Okay. So I'm going to suggest, you know, you can see Mm -hmm. the consultation where they're holding up things and you're talking, I mean, which never really, I think up till now, video conferencing has always been plan F. Nobody liked it. It seemed off putting, but it's brought this ease of interactivity virtually. And it's going to be interesting to see what spills out of that and how that impacts the retail landscape. The next thing is that we've seen this explosion of ways to shop online. Like just in the past week, Instagram has offered all sorts of different things from Instagram live stories to Instagram feed, their push on IGTV, which brands are experimenting with. Pinterest is sort of coming back alive. And and we see TikTok in its early evolution, where it was just a Gen Z platform, and now all of a sudden my friends are sending me TikTok videos. So I'm like, wow, we've wrecked it just like Facebook. Uh It's going down. So I think that there's going to be this technology explosion of how we interact with each other and with items that affects actually our consumer behavior. So you could see with a beauty consultation, you could say, well, can you just show me how to apply my makeup? And so Where you might go into Sephora to have somebody do that for you You might be able to do it virtually and they'll say okay watch. This is how I'm recommending it We've also seen a surge in people's use of mobile devices and so mobile marketing is here to stay We've seen even on the social media platforms a switch to vertical video because everyone's watching it on handheld devices and I think that That's going to be integrated into what's going on. And I also think that retail has been the slowest category. As part of Influence Central, we work with about 300 brands a year. And they range from Amazon to Kings Lion, from L'Oreal to a campaign we did for Ralph Lauren. And at the end of the day, retail has been very sluggish to really understand how to utilize influencer marketing other than just showcasing Pictures like fashion pictures, but I believe that there's more storytelling. So if you think of going back to our conversation about J. Crew and they want to they want to create a lifestyle, it's more than just this is I'm wearing this outfit, but this is my lifestyle as a Made Well consumer. This is me going more casual. This is me in my daily lives. I think we're going to see a real uptick in growing sophistication about how to leverage influence or not celebrity but influencer storytelling for the consumer demographic that they want to capture. And so in many ways, this area of social media, digital, geographic targeted marketing is, is very new on the retail landscape. And they've dabbled in it, but they've been one of the vectors in terms of a specialty. The brands have been very traditional in their approach to marketing and I think they're going to find themselves in a brave new world in which technology has to be a fundamental base of everything they do. And I don't think it's off the shelf. I don't think that they're going to turn to it like an Insta solution that they just pick up and there's a software. I think that that they're going to really be challenged to rethink the building blocks of what ladders up to how technology meets their consumer experience and sales.
0: mm mm-hmm. They need to rethink it, rethink retail. Um, I like the examples you provided with um, personal selling, video consultations, and some of the influencer marketing as it relates to lifestyle branding. Trevor, you do work in augmented reality. Do you think that the pandemic is going to drive more of that, you know, being able to see furniture in your homes? I think it's been a bit slow to pick up, but in recent times, at least personally, I've seen more apps like Wayfair and Macy's offering that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a huge benefit. And the technology has been pretty limited in terms of categories where it makes sense. For example, if you try and do a virtual fitting of a garment, it, it just looks terrible on you because the techn- <laughs> it's, it's not the garment's fault, it's the technology being pretty limited. But increasingly these things are becoming more sophisticated. So Stacey mentioned being able to do a video zoom or some similar type of video conference with a makeup artist. wouldn't it be great if they could actually just put makeup on your face and you know using the kind of virtual try-in technology that you'll find from Modiface or UCAM or 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 Holition or those guys. We work with Invisalign and we know that they've been doing uh, dental consultations, including, you know, being able to do they have a smile view technology so you can see your smile before and after. Invisalign. And I think you know just the way digital can enhance the way we browse and connect with products, uh, again, with shopping being this kind of discovery and serendipity, you know, whether it's on social media and content or in store, how do we bring all of that great content in store? I mean, that's a lot what we do at Perch in terms of being able to bring every piece of content for every product on the shelf. But I think the other part about that is from a technology perspective is data. And we actually have a kind of webinar a little later today, but, the data that's being unlocked by all these systems from online to in-store, be able to track customers, their shopping behavior, what products they interact with, what they consume is really going to uh, allow us to become much more efficient in every area of the business to reduce costs, to increase convenience, to increase joys. And, you know, that to me is what's, what's really exciting is that I, I feel that, you know, kind of in-store retail has been technology phobic for quite some time. And now that the eyes are wide open as to the possibilities and and their existential threats, if you don't adopt technology and leverage these technology browsing behaviors and content browsing behaviors, we're going to see kind of a new age of retail that really melds the best of both visual, physical and digital shopping, and it's it's going to be enjoyable and engaging and entertaining.
0: Absolutely, and it's good to end on a positive note. There, um, you know, as retailers reformat their stores and rethink how how the consumer shopping experience will look, you know, in a few months from now, I think those elements are important. And we will be back in stores eventually. So maybe not to as great of an extent, but I think there are elements of in-store that you just can't replicate online. So great to talk with you both, Trevor and Stacey. Really loved hearing your expertise and insights. And I hope you come back on the show again. Thank you. Thanks for having us.